KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. The Philadelphia jails have been front and center in the news over the past few months. There have been allegations from inhumane conditions to unexplained deaths. We'll sit down with Blanche Carney, the commissioner of the Philadelphia Department of Prisons, to get some answers. Our newsmaker this week is making a difference in her community. She's a mother of three and is dedicated to keeping her kids on point. It's scary because you don't want to shelter them from too much that they don't know how to handle themselves when you're not around. Antoinette Lee's Philly Rising Changemaker was nominated Student of the Month, who thrives even in the face of adversity. It feels nice to be Student of the Month because I never had a word like that before. And it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Claire Schubick Richards is executive director of the Pennsylvania Prison Society. She's been extremely vocal about what she calls the city's continuing denials of the dangerous and inhumane conditions in the jails. I spoke with her in preparation for this interview with Commissioner Carney. Claire, thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly. Now tell me about the conditions of the jail, the complaints you've been receiving, and what COVID exposed. In April of 2021, Most prisons, most jails around Pennsylvania were easing restrictions, COVID restrictions. They were letting people move around more. The family visits had reopened. And the complaints that we were hearing out of most facilities were decreasing. Things were getting better. But in Philadelphia, complaints to our our helpline were doubling. And um, they continued to increase month after month. And that's when we started really amping up our look into what was happening in the Philadelphia jails. I mean, just the number of mothers calling us in tears And we also started to get, um, I don't want to give the impression that it was a lot because it wasn't a lot, but we did start to get one or two calls a month from correctional officers at the jail wanting us to know that there were real problems. So while most of the state was jail conditions were improving with widespread vaccination and the lifting of COVID restrictions in Philadelphia, it was quite the opposite. Now, does all of this fall on the lap of the Department of Prisons Commissioner Carney? Does she have the backing and support of city officials to do something about this? Commissioner Carney is in a difficult position because she actually doesn't have the authority to solve the overall crisis at the jail. The crisis at the jail is a confluence of too many people in custody and too few staff and some poor management practices. Now, the poor management practices are within her purview, but the too many people and too few staff are beyond her control. The staffing issue at this point is a mayoral and city council level crisis, right? It involves union negotiations and bringing in extraordinary temporary staff. They're in such a staffing deficit. The regular hiring practice is no longer simply what's needed. I mean, there are hundreds of people who need to be in those jobs yesterday. Um, And the too many people in custody That can be resolved either through um, the courts, again, not Commissioner Carney, the courts taking expedited measures to move to process cases through so that people get out more quickly, get either get sent to state facilities if they're sentenced or go home if they're not um, if they're not convicted. Um, Or it requires the city leasing space in another jurisdiction's jail. 
all of those things are beyond her control. So Commissioner Carney is often left on the hook for a problem that she has to deal with day to day. I mean, it is a crisis, but is not a problem that she can resolve. Um, and so my heart goes out to her, um, but this is a real crisis. What I have seen with my own eyes and what we have heard from hundreds of people in custody and their families is not an aberration. In your opinion, how has the city as a whole dealt with this situation? You did say there have been some improvements, but is the problem wholly acknowledged? One of the things that, two of the things that have struck me by the, by the city's public statements on the crisis in the jail, either it has been to say, oh, lots of jails are having problems just because we're having people kill each other and get assaulted and blood on the ground. That happens lots of places. Well, first of all, that's troubling in and of itself. But secondly, the crisis in Philadelphia is of a proportion that is unique. Um, I have not done an analysis of the fatality numbers since the end of the calendar year, but we closed last calendar year with an absolute total of more fatalities than Rikers Island, a jail that is significantly bigger than Philadelphia. In fact, we were noted in the New York Times for having the most fatalities in a jail. So when the city says, oh, well, lots of jails are having this crisis. First of all, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we're not seeing this in many jails. Um, but also, I mean, there are some, but we're not seeing it across the board. But secondly, even nationally, we are an outlier. Let me pull up that number for you. But the other thing that is disheartening when city officials don't acknowledge the problem and its scope is that they also act like it's a force of nature that they have no control over. Oh, this is just a thing that happens now. Um, when there are some very concrete, albeit difficult, but concrete steps the city could do to end this crisis. This is a city, this is a crisis completely within the city's control. They can bring in emergency staff, either through the National Guard or through temporary staffing. They can reduce the number of people in that jail, either through expediting the court process, emergency orders, or renting space in another, uh, in another facility out of the jurisdiction. It's solvable. I'm not saying it's politically easy. I'm not saying that each one of those steps doesn't have things that aren't great about them. They do. There are problems with each of those. But those problems are not as extreme as assault and death. Well, we've heard the allegations. Now let's get some answers. Philadelphia prisons have been under fire as of late, as the conditions there have been described as unsafe and unsanitary. There's also an alleged issue of staffing shortages and overcrowding. The prisons are now under court-appointed monitoring. In addition, the city has agreed to pay hiring and retention bonuses for correctional officers and grant inmates more time out of their cells. Blanche Carney is the commissioner of prisons for the city of Philadelphia. She has been hit with lots of criticism and recently testified at a hearing where she painted a different picture of what's going on. So we'll hear from her, and she joins us now. Welcome, Commissioner Carney. Thank you. For those who are not familiar with you, tell us all about your background and how you grew into your role as Commissioner of Prisons for Philadelphia. Well, I started my career uh, with the Philadelphia Department of Prisons in 1995 as a social worker. I uh, promoted up through the ranks of the social work side and all along my uh, professional career, I've worked closely with uniform. And then I was uh, fortunate to be uh, appointed by Mayor James Kenney in 2016, and I'm serving uh, since that point as the commissioner. Well, there have been several issues at the prison facilities that have been reported this year, and uh, I'd like to get your take on them. First, staffing. Now, according to a report by the Philadelphia Inquirer, there is a 36% staff vacancy rate, uh, which translates to a shortage of about over 640 correctional officers. Is this accurate? Has it grown? And what led to the issue? So step back just briefly, uh, pre-pandemic, I had reduced the uh, vacancy rate from 16% to 5% in 2018, and we were on course to continue to depopulate 
and decreased the prison population and then the pandemic hit. And that really halted all of the efforts that we were working towards. And so when the pandemic hit over these last 24 months, we have been impacted, not just here in Philadelphia, but nationally as part of the great resignation. We've had individuals uh, either retire early or leave the department for various reasons. This pandemic has uh, you know, really significantly impacted our operations. We're a 36% vacancy rate um, has really impacted uh, the staffing coverage. However, we've managed with the workforce that we have in all of the interviews that I've stated since the onset of the pandemic, you really have dedicated uh, workforce here, civilian and uniform who do report to work. Uh, but we're also encouraging individuals and have encouraged individuals uh, who are employed with the city to report to work to support those individuals who stand up. So as part of the great resignation, I think there was some uh, sense that we wouldn't be impacted, but we've been impacted as in other law enforcement um, departments and we have to work to rebuild back. Uh, we were fully operational department, but we had to scale back, pivot and readjust how we operate these facilities with the workforce that we have and also trying to build back our workforce because this pandemic has had a negative impact on our staffing levels. What's the most challenging uh, impact that COVID has had on your prison operations in general? We're not fully operational. We're working our way back. Uh, Pre-pandemic, on any given day, you had incarcerated individuals participating in various programs, services, activities, vocational training, work assignments, educational programs. Uh, we had fully operational uh, legal visits, uh, visitation. People were going to court frequently. And we were a full operation. What the pandemic has done was we're in the process of a modified and phasing back to full operation. So we're still um, working to bring programs back online. We have some virtual programs, we have in-person programs, but it's not to the large scale that we had pre-pandemic because we are still in this pandemic. We still have to manage it to make sure that we can mitigate and manage any potential spread inside our facilities, not just to keep the incarcerated population safe, but our workforce safe as well. You mentioned staff showing up for work, and I'm sure you're familiar with the uh the allegations that there are staff that simply don't show up and those who are are stressed and they have to deal with mandatory uh, mandatory overtime. What's the situation there? Are there staff that's just simply not showing up? Yes, there are. And we encourage all staff uh, to report to work. Uh, to support their fellow colleagues, uniform and civilian. And part of it is that we know we, this is a 24 hour operation, but we know we have to show up to do the work. We can't run uh, prisons virtually. We can't do it from the comfort of our living rooms. We have to be here. We play a vital role as part of public safety. And I just wanna commend the dedicated workforce who does report as schedule. We do know that they are working overtime. And when we have a, a, and utilize, fully utilize our entire workforce, it really does lighten the load on those individuals who are reporting to work. And so this is, uh, you know, from the very beginning, this has been my message. It's really to encourage those folks, but I have to commend those folks that show up day in and day out. They do the job for which they're hired and they do it with dignity and fidelity and tenacity because it hasn't been easy, but they're doing it. But the goal here is to rebuild back our workforce. Well, I know I can't just not show up for work, uh, Commissioner Carney. Why aren't some employees showing up for work and what are the repercussions for those who don't? So we uh, are following policies and procedures. We do uh, grant accrued leave time off for everything is uh, per the policy. But when we see that there are individuals who, you know, there's no additional supporting documentation, we're engaging those folks to come back. And we're managing that to, through policies and procedures. And because we don't want anyone to leave the department, but we want them to come back. We want them to be, play a vital role as a part of the prison's department, and we need them, frankly. Um, while we can acknowledge that the pandemic has had some impact, that's part of the rebuilding back process, is that we have to work to come back and increase those staffing numbers and to uh, support the existing workforce who are doing well above what we're asking them to do. Do we know why they aren't coming back or why they haven't showed up? 
it could be for various reasons. And I think one of the things is that we deal with human beings. I think uh, it's easy to think of uh, corrections as robotic, uh, but people are human beings as in any other workforce. People have taken self-assessments. We saw that 4.5 million people left the workforce. So when we talk about the great resignation, and this is by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I think there's this understanding that we're not part of that. And we are. And so if we're clear and we're saying 4.5 million people left their jobs, guess what? Corrections falls right there. And this is nationally. Um, but you know, here in Philadelphia, we can't be seen as a separate entity or department, but we're part of uh, that labor statistic. Are you open to uh, temporary staffing? Uh, yes, we are. Uh, we're exploring that. And again, that all has to be uh, negotiated. Inmate safety has also been called into question after reports of things like riots, uh, violence, fires. Are the inmates safe? The inmates are safe. Have we had incidents? Yes. And let's put that into context. For pre-pandemic, you didn't hear much about the prisons because we were fully operational. We were actively engaging incarcerated individuals with a variety of uh, programs, education programs, and I've mentioned those before. You didn't hear it. We were in the going on the right path, decreasing the population safely, making sure we had the correct people in custody. Then the pandemic hit. Incidents started. We have had individuals in custody uh, over 24 months that are pretrial, still waiting their day in court. Frustrations build. Um, we're working with the workforce that we had. We had to go into a modified uh, operation where we weren't as robust in programs and services. So those are some of the incidents that uh, did occur and they're happening nationally. I, I can't say it enough. Philadelphia is not alone in this. We're trying to really put the lens on what is happening in corrections nationally. But those have heard our our main focus is to keep the population safe as well as the workforce. And we have been responsive when we've had incidents. And I think one of the things, it's easy to point out all the things that are wrong, but did we maintain our responsivity throughout every response? Yes, we did. Okay. I did have a chance to speak with Claire Shubik Richards, and she is executive director of the Pennsylvania Prison Society. She says she's received reports of pretty bad conditions, and we've documented individuals describing rats, mice, roaches running amok, and other inhumane-type conditions. What's the condition of the prisons like? Are these descriptions accurate? They are not accurate, and uh, Ms. Claire Schubert-Richards and representatives from the PA Prison Society have been given unfettered access throughout the pandemic. They've come in. Um, they toured the facilities, they've spoken with individuals. And I do respond when uh, Ms. Claire uh, Schubert-Richards provides information. But what we've asked her to do is to give us the specifics, who, what, when, where, why, and how, so we can properly investigate. It's like if I made a police report and I'm reporting a crime, but I don't give you any more specifics. We need that information. The jails are clean. She has access to them. We're not seeing the same thing she does. And let me tell you, no one building in the city of Philadelphia is going to be exempt from a, a little creature coming in through some crevice and, and you know, getting in. But we've had a longstanding pest control contract that predates the pandemic over years. We're doing this anywhere you have individuals, you have food, you have debris, we clear that out. We make sure that any trash is collected and discarded accordingly. And we are surrounded. We're on, we sit on 25 acres of, of uh, footprint and we're surrounded by water and grass. So we have an active pest control. We address it as routine. I don't want anyone living in squalor or poor conditions because I'm on site every day. I'm not home in the comforts of my home trying to manage it. I'm on site every day. So as I'm walking through these facilities, the facilities are clean. It's also been reported, Commissioner uh, Carney, that uh, inmates have been missing meals, living in filth. I know you said that, they, that everything is clean. Uh, and that logs were allegedly fake to reflect the contrary. Is there any truth to this? There is no truth to that. We've maintained our food contract. We've missed no meals. 
we serve three meals per day to a population on average of 4,500 on any given day. We simply have not received any of those complaints where someone is saying, hey, I'm not being fed. It's simply not true now. If there are individuals who insist on reporting that, give me the information. But we know these meals are delivered to all of the individuals 365 days a week, three times a day, seven days a week. You know, at one point, um, Richards has suggested that the National Guard was needed to keep order in the prisons. What's your reaction and take to that? My reaction is that uh, even if you were to take advantage of, of that opportunity, they are not specifically trained to do corrections. The National Guard, I respect them. They do a wonderful job. But you cannot simply place the National Guard inside an institution, correctional institution, absent weapons and think that it's going to go well. There's specific training to being a correctional officer, how you interact and how you get folks engaged to go from point A to point B. Uh, That was not the answer. In addition, when you're talking about um, the uh, just having those folks come in and take it, it flies in the face of those dedicated correctional uniform staff that know the job, that are doing and managing under some very challenging circumstances. But that simply was not the cure-all answer. Okay. So is it your contention that all of these allegations are overblown, in your opinion? What's your take on the allegations? My take on the allegations is that I look into all allegations, but let it be fair. Give us the specifics so we can research, investigate, and respond. When we have blanket allegations, listen, I'm not under any illusion that individuals who have been here for 24 months pre-trial, they want to go. They want to have their cases disposed of and heard. But if we're going to be fair, give us the information. Let us investigate it and let us respond. But when we have blanketed you know, allegations, it doesn't serve us well because we want to be able to defend ourselves. We want to be able to say, yes, if this is what's happening and the results yield, yes, this is accurate, then we will take the appropriate action. Specifics are always welcome. Commissioner Carney, let's go back to COVID and the mandatory lockdowns that took place. Have things kind of gotten back to normal and how much time do inmates actually have outside of their cells now? We've come a long way from the initial onset of the pandemic where we were in the most strict lockdown. That's when the first two weeks hit, no one knew anything about COVID-19. We stood up our mitigation strategy and that continues to date. We are headed back in the right direction to reopening, but we have to do it safely. So folks are coming out of their cells still in cohorts and we're getting individuals out on hours per day. And this information is reported, we're tracking it, and that is our goal. We're in some facilities, we're upwards of eight hours per day. It does depend on our staffing levels. We are not uh, in a position to just fully reopen just like that. Why? Because we're operating safely based on the workforce that we have and the population, but folks are getting out of their cells. Okay. What percentage of the prison population, if you have that on hand, is in solitary confinement? And are there any any issues that have surfaced with regards to, to mental health in that regard? So when we talk about solitary confinement, we're talking about individuals in um, segregation, either for or, or uh, policy violations or a threat to uh, other individuals. Our behavior health services have continued throughout this pandemic. Individuals um, are still engaged. They still receive medication. They're still being assessed uh, during the pandemic. Similar to the hospitals and the healthcare staffing, we were impacted. And we had a few cases where instead of having our services every day, we had a slight backlog. We're working our way back to fill those vacancies, but behavioral health has uh, been maintained throughout this pandemic. Is it at the same levels? Uh, No, but are we engaging individuals? Yes. Are they receiving treatment? Yes. Are they being evaluated? Yes. But it's all driven how uh, we're managing the population and service delivery in a pandemic. How do you feel about the independent monitor? And is this a step that you welcome? 
I do welcome that because I and my team have been in the trenches uh, these past 24 months. We have done a lot of good work. I welcome a monitor to come in that will be able to properly assess and impartially, which is the key, impartially state what the observation is. Uh, I think we've just been painted with such a broad stroke. Uh, it flies in the face of dedicated men and women and my team that are here, boots on the ground doing the work. And when you're managing through a pandemic, I responded continuously to questions, uh, provided good information, but rarely, I can tell you rarely were my responses uh, you know, shared with the general public. So I do understand what sells. If it bleeds, it leads. I get that. And I'm not even a journalist. But when you take that much time to be that responsive, only to have a word or two delivered and shared, we had to continue with the work at hand. And that was to continue to operate these facilities. You can't do it virtually. Me and my team came in every day, round the clock, managing these facilities. So I welcome that monitor to take a look at our operations to say, is what was said what I'm seeing? And let them be the impartial party. Because it's always easy to comfort up your home and then command, but you're not boots on the ground during the operation. What's the current jail population, Commissioner Carney? And what's being done about the, I guess, the alleged overcrowding? So we don't have overcrowding, believe it or not. Okay. We received the MacArthur Grant in 2018, and our population at that time was 8082. I talked about how we were on the right path to decrease the population, and we were trending in the right way in 2018. We reduced the population collectively because of that $3.5 million grant where all of the criminal justice partners got together, came up with a set of metrics. We reduced the population by 50% in 2018. We closed down the House of Corrections. The vacancy rate went from 16% to 5%. We are not overcrowded. We are, our population is 47.6% less that time. We have today's census is 4,229. The county jail is built for a, a sentence of less than two years, one day shy, less two years. What we, what the pandemic did is it impacted the procedural operations to ensure that people had their day in court. So during these 24 months, we are now as a collective working to decrease that backlog and tackle that backlog of cases. So we had really had good experience with a higher sentence population in comparison to pretrial that has been flipped. So now you have a higher percentage of pretrial folks waiting for their day in court, um, and we're working through that. But this pandemic played a role in that. And so our population was static, which is not how it should be. Okay. Commissioner Carney, finally, if you would, I'll just give you this moment. Uh, what would you like people overall to know about yourself and the operations of Philadelphia prisons? I'd like people to know that we are not a department absent Philadelphia. We are a major operating department in the city of Philadelphia. Corrections is an excellent career. We will have to do a lot to rebuild based on the negative coverage um, and negative comments by public officials that, you know, really doesn't lend focus. We've had challenges. There's no one industry in the world that has not been impacted by COVID-19. I'm committed to the work that I started. I'm a social worker by trade. I'm interested and invested in people and we will continue, but we have to manage our way uh, out of this uh, pandemic. We have to get back to full operations. And I see individuals, I meet individuals where they are. I don't just see people who are committed to our custody as a number. I see my workforce, I see the population and I see the path forward. I want everyone to take opportunity, give the prisons a try. This is a viable career. It offers benefits. It offers a pension. And guess what? You can make a difference as part of criminal justice reform. We are building our way back. We have work to do, but I, I just want us to be um, just recognized as, as 
the impact of this pandemic and how we can get our way back. We're not making excuses. We've been boots on the ground. We remain committed, but we want anyone, I'm going to take this opportunity. If you know someone looking for a job, a career, and a pension, give the prisons a try. We are a great department and we are working our way back. Blanche Carney, Commissioner of Prisons for the City of Philadelphia. Thank you for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you. When it comes to raising kids, parents pretty much have the same concerns, keeping their kids safe and on the right path. Yolanda Sidner is Sharaday Howard's Newsmaker of the Week. This week's Newsmaker is a tribute to mothers in our area. And our Newsmaker is a Philly mom through and through, who represents much of who and what we talk about on Bridging Philly. Women leading by example, bridging communities in the midst of a pandemic as street and gun violence skyrocket. The real Newsmakers this week are mothers who continue to meet the challenge, like Yolanda Sidnor, a mother of three young men, all of whom she raised in the heart of North Philly. She's sharing her story, one of a mom doing her best to keep her son safe and her family on track. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Yolanda. Glad to be here. So you're a mom of all boys. Three. Three boys. Therese, Taquan, and Isaiah. They're all seven years apart. That's a pretty widespread. Now, raising three young men in Philly, it's not for the faint-hearted. Not at all. Not at all. It has been very challenging in different eras of my life with the space in between each one of them. This last one being the most challenging with all of the violence going on um, throughout the world, let alone in the city of brotherly love. But um, God's been good to us because I've been blessed. I still have them here with me. So let's talk about that. Isaiah is 18. He just turned 18. He's a special kid. Tell me about Isaiah. Isaiah is the last of the Mohicans. (laughs) I have grown tremendously from his older brothers, a, a lot more patient, a lot more open and understanding with him than I have with his brothers. And they definitely let us know that Isaiah gets away with murder <laughs> with some situations. And I think I've gotten a little lenient, but Isaiah thinks I've, I'm, I'm very hard, but he's a good kid, so I don't have to be hard. And he's not in the street causing trouble. You've been able to keep him close. He's listened. He's not into a bunch of nonsense. It's just music that sometimes I don't agree with, but then he points out some good things in some of the lyrics. He's an athlete, so he keeps me busy. And then the thing with the haircut. At 18, he's a barber. He has his own business. Just trying to make sure he gets to and from cutting hair safely has been most of the time the challenge for me. So Philly, like a lot of major cities right now, is going through a spike in street violence, gun violence. How have you managed to keep your boys on the straight and narrow? Uh, One, by not being his friend. I will never be nobody's friend. I will always be mom. And I'll try to understand your side in this day and age that we live in. And you have to understand mine because... I run the house. It's scary because you don't want to shelter them from too much so they that they don't know how to handle themselves when you're not around. And all you can do is, you know, tell them what it is and, and hope that they see what you see and be able to handle themselves when they're out there without you. So my mom used to always say a mother did her job when she taught her kid not to need them. How does that resonate with you? And I'm 50, 55. I think I will always need my mom. Um, what I've done, and I think I've done a good job, if I can toot my own heart, I, um, I've given my sons tools of life, helped them pack a bag so that all of the things that I instilled in them, they packed and they'll be able to take out and pass on to their children. Tools and a skill set that they use day to day because much of their lives were spent in the heart of North Philly and then Germantown. Um, it wasn't easy. I just kept them busy. Like my grandmother and my mom kept me busy. It's always something to do in the house. Woodwork, windows, learn to cook a meal, them laundry, fold clothes, put them away. It was something to do. Tell us about that. They had big brothers, two big brothers, big sisters, my oldest and Isaiah. My middle son um, took classes at the Academy of Fine Art. He can draw and read music. They play sports. So I kept them busy. Uh, it wasn't no time for nonsense. And I didn't bring nonsense into my household and refuse to allow any end to it. I picked and choose to my boys' 
make company with so that they can stay away from the nonsense and I can protect them a little better. So you kept them close? Yes, absolutely. Very close. Almost skin close. (laughs) (laughs) And clearly it's working. So, you know, if it ain't broke. Now you made sure that Isaiah and your other sons had mentors. Can you tell us how important it is for young men to have mentors and how Big Brother's Big Sisters played a role in their success? Big Brother, I used it with my oldest son, but I was still young too, so I didn't know what I was getting into and how important it was at the time. But here I am uh, with son number three, 14 years later, I decided to reach out and get Isaiah Big Brother. And I had the pleasure, we had the pleasure and have the pleasure of former Eagle Safety Rodney McLeod, unfortunately he's going to the Colts, has been Isaiah's big brother for the last four years. And he has been a great asset to the family. Just a delight, him and his wife, the encouragement that Isaiah gets, the links that Isaiah gets um, from him, um, the mentorship, just Rodney being a part of these four years have been vital to Isaiah's growth. And um, I, I, th- I really thank God for Rodney McLeod. He's a great guy. Parents are great. We done been at some Eagles games cheering them on. But um, I can say that big brothers, big sisters definitely had um, a great um, part of Isaiah's growth in the last four years. So part of the job of being a mom is to kind of create a support system outside of yourself as well. The pastor at Jones Memorial Baptist Church has also been um, a great influence on my son's life. So I I just pushed in the right direction. I thank God for that because sometimes I felt like I didn't get it right or I'm doing something wrong. Um, And I say that to people that, you know, when they do things that I don't agree with, that what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. They have a mind of their own, um, just like anybody else, any male or female. They have freedom of choice, and that's how they learn by making mistakes. You know, their stumbling blocks, their stepping stones. So I let them grow that way, just like I did. I know it goes without saying that there's a lot of ups and downs, and it's not easy. But I see so much joy in your eyes when you talk about your sons. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that. It's uh, it's great, you know. Um, I see the results of the heart, the blood, sweat, and tears that I put out. I got great kids, and I may not even say that often enough, and hopefully they'll get to hear this interview, but I don't, I can't see my life, my world without them. Um, I don't know if they feel the same way, but I guess the trip to Tampa maybe told me that they did. Tell us about this trip to Tampa. Um, Isaiah came in the house with this beautiful bouquet of roses, and this car that I cried for about 20 minutes that I was just surprised that he took the time out to pick this card out for me said so much about who he is and what I am to him. And as I read the card, I could hear him saying those words. So that made me even cry even more. So he was like, mom, I'm giving you your birthday present early because, you know, I got a tournament this week and I won't be weekend and I won't be here and you won't be here either. And I'm like, well, where am I going? So he was like, we're going to send you to Tampa to see Aunt Monica. And I just cried even longer. <laughs> so it was a great little vac- getaway vacation for me. Different scenery. Um, it was just a change. I needed that. I'm, you know, dealing with life. Just needed a break. And it was great to get away. So they, that, that showed a lot of love that they thought of me to send me away. And you said life issues because I think a lot of women, a lot of mothers in Philadelphia are taking care of not just their kids, they're taking care of their mothers and their mother's mothers and aunts, and they're taking care of an entire family. And that's what you've been doing. And it's been a hard couple of years. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, especially these last two um, with COVID on lockdown. And for me to have three Golden Girls, senior citizens between 76 and 80 to help them out, it has been, um, don't want them out. And even with the crime, I don't want them out at all. Who are your golden girls? My mother, who is 80. My aunt, Lorena, who will be 78. And my aunt Joyce, who will be 76, all in the next two months. July and August are the other two birthdays. Just making sure they have what they need, you know. Um, the houses are, nothing's leaking, nothing broke, nothing getting in. Doctor's appointments. Yeah. I mean, you're their that's, main caretaker. That's the biggest part for me right now is the doctor's appointment. Spreading myself thin, I have to because if ever 
I or my children and I ever needed anything, I know that I could have and will and can go through those three women. So I'll go to three doctor's appointment with two of them today and two tomorrow and the next day. And I'm able to do it. So I have to. It's something that I want to do. Where do you find the strength? Prayer. That's all I can. That's all I have is prayer. And I get up and do it. I try to get to bed early so I can get some rest because I know I have these challenges ahead of me. And how important is it to not just be a mom, but to be a daughter sometimes? And a niece. It's very important. I love my golden girls. You cannot even understand the love. And I would do anything for them. Wherever I have to go, I'm going. Whatever mountain I have to climb, whatever river I have to swim, I'm going to do it for them. Because I believe they would have and they have done it for me when I didn't know how to appreciate them or life. So it's my responsibility now. They're passing the torch to make sure they're good. And that's that's my job. And I love it. And the pandemic. How have you guys been managing through that? It's been challenging, but God is bringing us through. You know, hopefully it's coming to a head and it's a little bit un- more under control than what it was. I thought we were going to be living the rest of our lives in the house and ordering offline, which isn't healthy. <laughs> We've all had a lot. And um, what we can do in, in, as a unit is just keep everybody prayerful. You know, I believe things will change. How fast? Don't know. But if we keep applying something positive, then positive will come. And what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Philly in particular right now is really hot. It's a hotbed of violence and the summer's coming. What's some advice you have for mothers? Just keep them busy as long as they're working. Um, hopefully, you know, bad vibes won't follow them to work, you know, to wherever they, whatever they're doing. And that's for everybody's son and daughter that is not a part of that. You know, you have some people, kids that are a part of the madness and you have some kids that want nothing to do with it. So you just keep them prayed up. And, you know, I know God works. I know that firsthand. So that's that's all I can do is keep them prayed up and wherever I can keep them busy with. At this age, I can say, well, I need my windows clean or some boxes move. I'm going to keep them busy this year. Is <laughs> the old school ways work, you know, if it ain't broke. Yeah, don't fix it. Make it work. But first, I'd like to say to you, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what's your Mother's Day message to those women out there looking for a little reprieve, a little advice? Keep your head up. And if you see another sister struggling, help her straighten out her crown. Sometimes it just takes a smile or a hug to encourage somebody to keep pushing through. And that's what you do. You push. You pray until something happens. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Charity Howard, and that's our newsmaker. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia. And since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. Hey, what up? He's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. This week, I wanted to highlight a special student. I always love any opportunity we have to hear from our youth and to get their stories and perspectives. Our Philly Rising Changemaker is Mayan Butler. He was also recently highlighted by the Philadelphia School District as Student of the Month. You don't have to be perfect to be great. That's the takeaway here. Mayan found himself at the Philadelphia Juvenile Justice Center earlier this year, but what he also found there was a teacher who cared about him and invested in him to help him get on the right track. Now he's a senior at Vox Big Picture High School, and he's looking forward to going to college in the fall, one of the first in his family to attend. Here's more from our Philly Rising Changemaker, Mayan Butler. And so thank you for joining us on Bridging Philly this week. It's an honor to be here. Congratulations on becoming Student of the Month for April. How did that feel for you? It feel nice to be a student of the month because I never had a word like that before. I won it at the PJJC, so the whole school district. Like, I got a student of the month when it was other kids at other schools, and they could have got it. 
And why do you think you were nominated out of those other students that could have been chosen for this? I was participating. I was helping others. So I was just being myself, being my own. So tell me about your family life. I know that you have siblings, right? And you have also been a big helper for them. Tell me about that. Yeah, I got an older brother. I got two younger brothers. They're twins. He got like a good relationship. My older brother, he helped me a lot. The things he helped me with, I try to pass it down to my younger brothers. I don't want like my younger brothers to, to go through certain situations that me and my older brother had to go through. I be trying to like or lead them in a different direction. Like, you know, speaking of of mentoring them and trying to help them make the right decisions, I hear that you sort of turned your own life around and chose a different track. Can you tell me about that? I knew I made a wrong decision when I was like in the back of a cop car and like everything started processing through my head and I'm not no kid no more. Like I just kept thinking about it when like it got deeper, went from the cop car back to the station, then sleeping in the station then. Like, I just kept thinking if this happened again, like it probably won't be like this, it's going to be worse because I'm going to be older. So there's going to be worse consequences. And so I hear that you've sort of tried to make some different choices since then. So tell me what that process has been like for you. Doing things different. Like I was trying to go to school more, trying to be around like my mom and my brothers more. Whenever I called my mom, she always picked up every single time. It wasn't a time she left me hanging. So after that, I just wanted to cherish my mom and my brothers a little bit more. My mom, she a great person. Like whenever I call her, she pick up. She always come in clutch whenever I need her. So it seems like, you know, I can tell just from our one encounter today and that you have a lot of people in your life that are rooting for you, that are helping you. Tell me about some of those people. A lot of people helping me. There's a couple of my friends outside of school and a lot of people in school. My folks in school, like Ms. Vivian, Ms. Danina, Mr. Chris, Ms. Fleming, they was a big help. I come to school every day. There's not no way to like try to get away from the support or duck them. They always in my face every day, but it's in a positive way. There's some people, even if they didn't know me for five, 10 years, they still like support me. and got a lot of like love and care for me. So speaking of which, you pointed out a couple of teachers that I, I want to hear more about. Miss Fleming, tell me about your relationship with Miss Fleming. And then like, she was always a, a energized teacher. Her and Miss Cook, like they used to always like, I, when we went to school, we used to have a morning chant every morning. Like we never missed it. Like we had a routine and she went through it every single morning. She never missed a beat. It's always good to have good relationships because like challenging times, they don't really last forever. So if you get a good relationship through that challenging time, once you're in like a better like setting, like once you're just feeling better in life, when you're not fighting them eyes right there at that moment, you still got other people to call on. Like, so it's not like they was only with you when you was fighting, fighting the eyes. They could be with you too when you're doing good. And so I hear that you're going to be uh, the first in your family to attend college. Congratulations. So where are you going? Uh, I'm picking East Charlottesburg, picking out the different colleges. I ain't going to lie, like it was a little expensive. So then like, you mean, I was just comparing the prices. I mean, all the ones that accepted me. And East Charlottesburg seemed to be like one of the cheapest. And then it was a little out of the city a little bit. Like it's a couple hours away. I know a lot of people, like, even though, like, they good people, I look up to them. They still, like, around the neighborhood doing the same thing for all these years. Like, it's a big thing for for to go to college because a lot of people, they set the standard at high school. People that I know anyway, they set the standard at high school. So once you go to college, that's top of, like, some type of achievement. And if you graduate, too. And then I notice, like, all of them, like, even though they're good people, they're still around here doing the same thing for years. Like, it never changed. I just wanted to do something different. Congratulations on that and making that big decision. So to others who are listening to your story, what do you want them to know? I mean, this was a good thing to happen to me, like a good opportunity. And then I was just being myself. Like, like I was just a couple bad situations. And once I got out of those situations, I was just still being myself. I just say, always be yourself. And if it's something that you want to do, go for it, no matter what it is. And Leslie, I want to give you the opportunity to speak as well. Tell me what you know about Mayan. Mayan Butler is quiet and calm like he is right now. That is his nature. 
but he, when he speaks, when he spoke in class during that community meeting, he was talking about our morning chant, it demanded the respect and the ears of everybody because of what he would say. I think if I give my students certain advice, they're like, Ms. Fleming, what do you know? But they know Mayan and he has a lot of respect from our students that are here. They know him. And so when he spoke, they knew he was speaking from experience, but it was so wise. He was so done with his past. And not only was he speaking about his future in college, he came in with, I think, six acceptances to colleges. So he put his words where, like he put it into action already before coming to us. And that was really refreshing. You know, he started here and we know as teachers, we have to move quick with our babies because they, won't, they might not be with us too long, maybe 30 days, but he made an impact and he made big waves while he was here in a positive way, searching for scholarships, um, still applying to other colleges. So it's been a short, he did a lot. He did big things in a short amount of time. So just in 30 days, he said. 30 days or less, he was with us. And um, it was so memorable that when Miss Jessica Cope, who is his other teacher, he mentioned when she said, let's nominate Mayan for student of the month, we went into a different room and we started typing. It was so easy to type because of who Mayan is. It was so easy to nominate him. And Maya, real quick, what's your major? What are you thinking about? Education. Going to school and the teachers that I came across and the teachers who I met, it was a big impact on me. So I wanted to go into education field. Yeah. And so you kind of want to make that same difference in students' lives as well. And Ms. Fleming, speaking of which, um, where does your passion come from for your students? I grew up here. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to all public schools. I was not in private school. I didn't come from a lot of money. Um, so I had opportunities to teach outside of Philadelphia. But where your heart is, you will stay whether you should or not, but <laughs> where your heart is, you will stay. So my heart is here and I've seen the changes over time at Philly Pub and some of the things don't make me happy. So staying here, I get to use my classroom to create that positive space for babies like my baby Maya so that they can think differently about themselves. I told Maya, like we all made choices, all of us. But if you have goals and you change your surroundings, sometimes have to change your friends. I had to do it. You can accomplish it. You know, a lot of good things come out of Philadelphia and he is, he is one of them. I hope East Stroudsburg is listening so that they can give my baby some money so he can, so he can have the opportunity to be as great as he wants to be. And money was in the way for me, but thank God I got a full ride. So I hope East Stroudsburg hears this story and throws something at my man so he can so he can be the greatest person that he desires to be with that support. So I hope they look out. I'm rooting for you too, Mayan. If you know a Philly Rising Changemaker we should highlight next, please reach out to me. Every week I'm looking to highlight someone making a difference no matter how large or small. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.